I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, urban planner with Gould Evans, and I'm joined once again by regular co-host and founder of the Strong Towns organization, Chuck Marone, as well as senior editor of Strong Towns, Daniel Harrigus. Glad to have you both on today. Hey, nice to talk to you, Abby. Glad to be here as well. So today's article was published by Smart Cities Dive by Chris Teal entitled Tech Lash at Sidewalk Labs Could Mean Smart City Rethink. The author reports that Sidewalk Labs has officially decided to end its involvement in Toronto's ambitious master-planned project that would have developed 12 acres of waterfront into a model smart city. It's claimed that the economic uncertainty of our times has ultimately caused Sidewalk Labs to back out of the project. However, it has been controversial from the start due to privacy concerns. A core feature of this new place would have been to implement a sensor-driven approach to data collection. This public-private partnership sparked a number of concerns from both Toronto residents and elected officials around the invasion of privacy and potentially intrusive technology, especially for use by private companies. Daniel, I know you know a lot about this project, and I want to get your thoughts about it and just smart cities in general. Personally, I kind of struggle to understand the allure of high-tech cities as a means of solving the many problems that we face. There's obviously a lot of really cool ideas circulating in this sphere, but as someone who is trying to help communities function better, I'm still not totally clear about what problems we are fundamentally trying to solve with these solutions. As I often ask, are we creating solutions looking for problems? Data can really help set the context and unveil underlying challenges that people face, but over-reliance on data can also be a little bit of a crutch. I think that planners sometimes forget about the small but mighty action of just people watching and getting on the ground and talking to people. Simply observing the environment is still an important and effective measure to understanding a place and where people struggle. So I'm curious if you think that smart cities are the future of urban efficiency and if I'm missing something here. I've been really underwhelmed by the whole smart city phenomenon from the get-go. I think you pose an excellent question, what problem are we trying to solve here? The maybe snarky cynic in me says, well, the problem we're trying to solve is uh, someone's desire to get paid hawking smart cities. (laughs) Um, What I mean by that is I think... (laughs) The problem we're trying to solve is like techies have all these ideas and where can they experiment on people, you know? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I, I do think that... You know, I mean, in the same way that there are bubbles in the financial markets, there are bubbles in sort of the marketplace of ideas. And I feel like we've been in a smart city bubble in not so much even in urban planning, but in urban planning punditry kind of for the last few years where there's not only are there tech companies looking for a market for these cool ideas they want to try out, but there's sort of been a cottage industry of pundits talking about smart cities and smart tech and the Internet of Things being the wave of the future. and 
frankly, as someone trained in urban planning who knows a lot of urban planners, you know, I think the people I know working in local government, I mean, with some exceptions, aren't the ones who are really fired up about this. There's been a lot of press. There's been a lot of um, investment and a lot of hype around these mega projects, you know, whether it's Elon Musk and the Hyperloop and all that stuff, or whether it's the Sidewalk Labs project. But in the end, you know, I, I think about what are the problems that a great urban place solves for people? And fundamentally, that's, you know, cities exist so that we can benefit from proximity to each other, from the ability to kind of cross-pollinate ideas, you know, just the that agglomeration economy, all the things that are great about cities. Like, we kind of figured that out a long time ago. Is it clear to me at all that whatever, you know, Sidewalk Labs was going to deliver in Toronto would ultimately be a better urban experience than I can get by, you know, going to Paris and walking around, going to Rome. Like, I, I just don't, I don't see it. These technological solutions are either they're a solution in search of a problem, like you said, Abby, or sometimes they're also a solution to problems created by technology, problems created by the pursuit of hyper-efficiency in everything we do. When in fact, we've had low-tech solutions for millennia that work pretty well to do a lot of the things that we want out of cities. What do you think, Chuck? Toronto specifically is an interesting case here because I was in Toronto maybe like four years ago. The newspaper there brought me out and they wanted me to give commentary and feedback on three different intersections where they had had high fatality rates. So this was like them doing really in-depth reporting and they wanted this outside expert to come in and give some advice to Toronto on how to deal with these. And every single one of them was a strode mess. I mean, it was just like a disaster of design. And the way you fixed it was actually quite simple and quite easy and didn't require like any high tech. It just required you to like basically rethink the objective of the intersection or the street or like what you were trying to do. Very low tech solutions, very easy. And of course, even today, none of these have been done. It was not just me out there, but it was like a conference. So there was a couple other you know, very smart people there that were experts. And we just talked about it and, you know, they reported in the paper and it was really good. None of those are done. And so I, I look at Toronto and I'm like, I love the idea of using technology to be of service to people. But I hate and just loathe the idea that we would, first of all, be distracted by it from doing like easy things that are urgent today that we should do that are, that are obvious. And it's just like, we're just not doing them. It's like we're chasing the shiny object. And then I'm also kind of offended or like my radar is like on, like I'm, I'm detecting that a lot of this stuff is not designed to actually serve people. It's actually designed to make people, the way Gmail is, you know, does it serve people? Sure, because you're the customer. It's, it's almost designed to make like us into better consumers, better customers, better people for tech companies to provide customized services to. I get that as a business model. Like I'm not offended by the Google business model. I'm not offended by this type of business model because I, I know what I'm getting into. I am like uptight about it when it seeks to become like the way we operate cities, because I, I don't think that that is the way humans want to live 24 seven. Well, I'll add something else that I think is a little bit offensive to me 
And it's that I've noticed several articles that this project has been sort of touted as a model for sustainability, which I really actually don't get at all. A community that's kind of completely set up on all these technological systems, it's intriguing in theory, but I don't think that I'd call it sustainable. I actually think of sustainability as more of like the nuts and bolts of original human settlement patterns and, you know, having the technologies that serve us rather than us serving the technology. I actually don't really think that technology is going to shoot us into this sustainability future that we've been sold and that the added layers of all of these complicated tools can actually make our communities more fragile if we are too heavily reliant on them. When I think of sustainability, I actually, you know, a high tech solution isn't the first model that comes into my head. I instead kind of think about a place like my own neighborhood, which was built in the 1800s and it has sustained in quotes, through many eras of economic and social changes. And it's a low-tech place, yet it has prevailed. So, you know, I wonder, does that count for anything when we're talking about sustainability? You don't think on-demand nachos from your app is sustainable? (laughs) Like, I don't get, that's the world I want to live in. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I I share your reaction to that, Abby. And, you know, I came to the whole urbanist conversation through environmentalism. I feel like I was an environmentalist first. And so a lot of the discourse around sustainability in high-tech new developments really just drives me up a wall. Steve Muzan, who's a good friend of ours at Strong Towns, the, the author of The Original Green, he's really incisive about this. But he talks about the ways in which, you know, the whole... Like the whole notion of energy efficient buildings, you know, so much of the technology that's been developed in the last 10 or 20 years is a bit of, you know, I don't want to say it's a sham, but it's, it's a response to a problem of our own making. And he'll talk about living in Miami Beach in a house that was designed really well using traditional building methods and being comfortable without air conditioning in the summer, because you've got the shade, you've got the cross breezes, you've got, I mean, this was built in a way that people had figured out how to build for that climate. And then at a certain point with modernism, we took all of that away, and now we build these hermetically sealed buildings, and okay, you've got like a wall of glass on one side because it looks cool, but now it's going to be a, a furnace on a sunny day, so now we need to figure out, you know, we get, we need the, the advanced HVAC system, and then we need to figure out, well, how are we going to make that quote-unquote sustainable, um, you know, and how are we going to do the green roof to deal with drainage? And how are we like, we give ourselves a silver rating because we've improved the air conditioner efficiency by 20%. Right. <laughs> um, right. And there's just, there's, there was a lot of that in what I was reading about the sidewalk lamps proposal. You know, they were talking about heated sidewalks for Toronto winters. And I'm just thinking, you know, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I know how to deal with winter outdoors and, there are much simpler design elements that people have figured out in cold climates. You know, you do, you have, you know, effective wind breaks, you use deciduous trees and shrubs so that you get the sunlight penetration on a winter day, but you still get some, some barrier from the wind. You know, people for hundreds of years have been adapting to hot climates. Um, You can go to New Orleans and you can walk around the French quarter in July and be reasonably comfortable because the design is so good for like the the grid is skewed to the sun so that there's shade at all hours of the day. You've got balconies, you've got cross breezes, you know, through the streets are designed for for ventilation. Again, we why do we need high-tech solutions other than because somebody has a high-tech solution they want to sell us? 
the heated sidewalks idea kind of blows my mind because it doesn't take a lot of energy just to put some clothes on and shovel your sidewalk. And, you know, maybe instead of having to clear all the streets every time it snows, there's an opportunity to just, you know, have a snow day, work from home. I, I think that there's other solutions there that are a lot less high tech that we we tend to overlook and kind of not see as an option. So that we don't turn this into like the Luddite hour. At the end of the day, none of us are against technology. I, I think there are some interesting ways that technology can be used and should be used in cities. I just think like basing your decision, starting with the technology and then like retrofitting the people to it is a, is a bad idea. Let me give an example of what I think is a really good application of technology. I would love to see in my little park here in Brainerd, Minnesota, I would like to see some type of sensor that would tell us how often people sat on the benches. I believe, and I firmly believe this in the bottom of my heart, that they really like idiots who put the benches out in my park did it to try to simulate like randomness. So maybe some people would sit over here and maybe some people would sit over here and there's really no kind of rhyme or reason. They, they don't make any sense. And I've always thought, I mean, first of all, I've never seen anyone sitting on these benches, even though they spent thousands of dollars on them. And second of all, I thought if they were in a different place, you know, more people would sit on them. I would love, 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 and this would not be hard to do, a series of very low-tech kind of sensors that where readings could be collected that told you where people went in the park and where they sat down. Now, I don't want to collect it so that I can put an ad on the bench to sell them, you know, whatever thing they're looking for. I don't want to collect it so that I can, you know, force them to go to the swing set instead of the slide. I would just like to know, are we laying these benches out in like an optimum way or would there be a better way to put them that would actually help people? That is a pretty, on one hand, low-tech kind of thing that you could actually put like a high-tech solution to and solve that problem pretty quickly. I think that when, when I first heard about smart cities and all, my assumption is like, that's what they meant. Like, that's what the idea was. And the fact that it's not that, it's not like, for, for example, why don't we know how many people walk along a sidewalk? We have these like, 1950s traffic counters that we go and set up in this really old fashioned kind of dumb way. When the kids see them, they ride their bike over them a bunch of times. We use these like 1950s technologies to, to literally make multi-billion dollar traffic projections on. Why can't we just use like really basic technology to, to tell us how many people are trying to cross this intersection on foot, how many people are trying. And, and I know this has been developed because I've seen people have done it, but it's like niche technology. Why isn't this everywhere? Why isn't this everywhere all the time? It's, it can't be that difficult. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And like the whole problem with this kind of large scale approach to like building a smart city from scratch is that it leads with applying the technology first and then attracting the people. It doesn't necessarily try to think about um, ways to apply technology to an already existing environment to solve simple problems. I think there's another layer to it there. I think that's certainly true. But the other thing is the the kind of stuff that Chuck's talking about you know, I agree. I love it. I think it's valuable. I want to see more of it. My favorite 
addition to, um, you know, while I was living in Minneapolis for grad school, they redid one of the bridges across the Mississippi River and they added a bike counter at the entrance to the bridge. And I just love that thing because it tells you how many bikes have crossed it that day. And not only is it data collection for the city that they can use, but as a cyclist, you see that and you're like, yeah, I'm contributing to this number and I am demonstrating to people that like, we're out here and we count. Like, I, I love it. That kind of thing. Sure. If you took that bike counter away, the bridge would be every bit as useful to people on bikes. So I think there's a layer of technology that helps us optimize our spaces for people based on constant iterative feedback, which is what we should be doing anyway. And it just improves our collection of that feedback. But you take away the technology and things work. Where I get really offended by the the blinged out sort of smart city is where you take away the layer of technology and things start to fail and where you introduce fragility. So Sidewalk Labs in Toronto, they're talking about sensors that'll determine when the garbage needs to be collected. And okay, so what what happens when that system goes down? You You're creating systems that people are actually depending on for their comfort or for their ability to use the space that have built-in fragility because they're high maintenance. That's a really that's a really f- great distinction. The very first thing that I thought of when I ever heard the term smart cities was the Hoover Dam. This is going to be a weird like story, but I got a tour of the Hoover Dam and of course I paid the extra and did like the the hard hat tour I think they call it where you get like instead of the half hour one you get like a 4 hour, you know, get your knees dirty, crawl through tunnels kind of thing. It was awesome by the way. Do it if you're ever out there. In the dam in the 1930s, they put stress sensors like every 40 feet or 50 feet, which if you think about it, is kind of a smart thing to have in a dam. And they go out and they're dummy sensors. I mean, they're really, they go out with like this old fashioned Geiger counter looking thing and they plug it into each sensor and they take a reading and they'll know like, is the dam getting stressed? Is it going to break? Like, you know, which is like helpful stuff to know. You could, in a modern sense, like automate all that and make that data collection easy and make those sensors great. And if you were doing that in a way where, you know, you could then respond to things ahead of time and know and understand and and do iterative testing and figure out what's going on. But if you designed your dam where if that thing failed, the dam failed, well, now it's just a ridiculous folly, right? Because you could do it without it and have it work. But if you require the technology in order to make it work, now you've just taken something very simple and made it overly complex for no added benefit. I think that's a great insight, Daniel. Yeah. So we are actually nearing the end of our time today. But before this, we are at the sub, I want to share something that I actually found while researching this topic in an article that was published in Strong Towns on the Smart Cities subject. It's actually in the comments section by a user named WQ4 that I actually think summarized this discussion pretty well. He or she wrote, uh, sometimes the infrastructure and technologies we desire tell us something about our culture. Some classical historians, for example, believe that ancient Rome didn't have any street signs and that many streets were unnamed. How did people find their way around, especially in a strange city? You asked for directions, as it turns out, sometimes at different points during the same trip. If these historians are correct, it tells us that living in a Roman city both facilitated and required a lot of face-to-face contact with strangers. Certainly, they were capable and wealthy enough 
to create street signs, but they didn't see the need for them. I just thought this was a really interesting point. Uh, Shout out to WQ4. I think it's something worth thinking about as we are presented with these futuristic tools and they are marketed to us as something that's going to make our community work more efficiently. It's just incredibly important that we're asking ourselves what problems we are trying to solve by adopting new practices and what does it tell us about our culture? That's a great story. I love that. Yeah. I, I just thought, I don't know who this person is, but I thought that that was just a really interesting story. Um, and with that, we are going to move into the down zone and I'm going to pass it off to Chuck because we're going to do something different today. Yeah. Well, this week we are running this podcast jointly on both the UpZone feed and on the Strong Towns podcast feed uh, because it's member drive week. Twice a year, we hold a member drive at Strong Towns. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, we are a member-driven organization, and so fully 40% of our funding comes from people who give us $5, $10 a month or more, and uh, this is the time of year where we stop and we step back and we say thank you for that, and uh, we just ask people if you are in a position, and I know a lot of us find ourselves in difficult financial position today. We're not asking you to do anything that would that would jeopardize your your future finances. But if you are in a position to support this podcast, support this movement, uh, we would sure love to uh, to have you become a member of Strong Towns. You can go to strongtowns.org forward slash membership, uh, sign up today. Abby, I know that Strong Towns has meant a lot to you in Kansas City, and I know it's meant a lot to the Kansas City conversation. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about how this thinking has really, and this movement, you know, which is certainly more than you and me and, and Daniel and this organization, it's really now become a, a movement of, of thousands and thousands of people around the world, how this movement has affected the conversation and maybe some of the changes that you've seen take place because of what Strong Towns has been able to do as a movement. Thanks, Chuck. You know, I... I've really appreciated reading the Strong Towns website and listening to the content that you guys have all put out over the years. It's not only been something that has influenced how we practice as a planning studio at Gould Evans, but it's also influenced the conversations that we're having locally in Kansas City. And it's been encouraging that so many people in Kansas City are starting to better understand this problem. It's a problem that or I guess you would call it a predicament that doesn't necessarily have a lot of easy policy solutions or, you know, a 10 step program to get back on track. But it's something that has, you know, been able to enable us to really think differently about human settlements, how our city functions, land use, and even how we tax ourselves. And, you know, it's, it's been something that is, in the process here in Kansas City of becoming, you know, a really important issue. And I've been just so comforted by the fact that there are people in leadership positions, people within the civic and business community that are wanting to help and wanting to support Kansas City moving forward with this all in mind. So we appreciate that you guys have continued over the years to present these insights um, in various different ways. I think what I'm most proud of is, you know, a decade ago when we started calling this the Strong Towns movement and, and a movement to, 
you know, a bottom up uh, change movement. Some people laughed at me, you know, look like literally like who, what do you mean? Like you and your dog, like, what are you talking about? And it's funny because I, I think for many years, this was something where we could look around and we could see people reading and we could see people talking about this stuff. Um, but we hadn't reached the point where things had started to change. And over the last couple of years, we've really seen it dramatically. Uh, we've seen people be able to step up and say, hey, uh, I would like to see something different. And the awareness of Strongtown's ideas is there. And so the resistance that they have to the things they're putting forward is diminished. More people get it. More people are not pushing back. They're willing to listen at the very least. And I think, you know, the gratifying thing is that when they stand up now and say, hey, uh, let's think about this, let's do this differently, not only is the opposition less, but there's more people supporting them too. They, they don't have to go through this huge, long, like learning curve where it's like, all right, let me, let me get you up to speed because enough people have heard this now, enough people are part of this conversation. It started to permeate the general discourse where, you know, we find people like you, Abby, out doing their job who now have less friction, less resistance, and just like generally more support. And I, I think that's the thing that I've been the most proud of, you know, over the over the last couple of years that I've seen the most dramatic change. I don't know if you have a thought about that. Well, you know, here in Kansas City, it's definitely, it, it's been a mix of that. Some people are well aware of these conversations already when Gould Evans and Dennis from our team started kind of putting together Kansas City centric discussions and presentations around this topic and giving it to civic groups, advocacy groups, leadership groups, uh, business groups all around town. We've been giving these presentations for, oh, probably about a year and a half now. And these discussions have really helped to elevate the conversation and what it means for Kansas City. And it can continues to do that. And that's really the intention of us taking on this conversation and trying to lead this conversation here is that it, it is a learning curve and it's something that really does need local insight and, you know, all the people who have different understandings about how the city is functioning and what needs to happen next. So it, it really is a bottom up type of approach. And it's something that I've really appreciated and, and, the bravery, I guess, it, it takes to kind of stick your neck out and potentially say things that are going to not jive with the status quo or, or you know, pe the way things are currently going. And I, I feel that both you and Dennis have kind of shown what it means to like be brave in a civic manner and and go out and and just basically elevate the conversation regardless if people are going to agree with you or not or like what you have to say. Well, Dennis has been, you know, someone I've deeply admired and, and have, have really appreciated the work. And the work that you do, Abby, is fantastic too. I, I want everyone who is a regular listener to the Strong Towns podcast who has not heard of Upzoned to go and subscribe. We do this show uh, once a week. It's a shorter format like today, like back and forth and a little bit of discussion on current events. You can find that at upzoned.strongtowns.org or on any of your uh, your podcast feeds at Upzoned. And uh, for those of you on Upzoned who didn't know that there is a longer form Strong Towns podcast, once a week we're putting together a longer interview, a longer monologue, something for you, and you can get that. That's the Strong Towns podcast. 
And everyone should feel welcome and invited. If you want to know more about Strong Towns and the Strong Towns movement, just go to strongtowns.org. We're publishing articles every day. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff there for you. If you want to see this in the hands of more people and in front of more people, go ahead and sign up and become a member and, and help us make that happen. Abby, Daniel, thank you. And Abby, I'll turn it back over to you. It's your show. Well, that concludes today's episode of Upzoned. Thank you all very much for listening. And if you're new to this show, please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks, everybody. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. 